Well, there's that passage in the Bible. There's sheep on one side, sheep on one side, goats on the other. And if you're going to have people show up on a Sunday morning when the roads are as treacherous as they are, it's clearly the sheep that are here this morning. So praise the Lord for sheep. But I don't think that's the basis on which we're saved, by the way. That's going to become very clear in just a moment here, okay? We are in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians, called to be free. And I'm excited about what God is going to do through this series in just helping us to see some things of the gospel that we need to see. And if uh, if you haven't looked at these in a while, if you haven't looked at the book of Galatians in a while, then I think this is exciting stuff. In fact, I'd love for you right now, if you turn to the book of Galatians, it's uh, on page 824, which is the Bible's underneath the seats. And I'm going to be reading from chapter 3 here in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I just wanted to give a little bit of a refresher about some of the things that are so essential to really getting Galatians right. Like if we're going to understand what Paul's doing with the book of Galatians, there are some things we need to see. Like for example, Paul's really clear that there is only one clearly defined good news message offered by God's grace and to be believed. One true revelation about Christ. And that's important because in our world, that is not the way they see it. I talk to people all the time who want to say something about the fact that there are all kinds of ways to get to God, that there is no such thing as truth. And none of that rings true to me intellectually. Like I, you know, I think about all that and I think, nah, that just doesn't doesn't fit at all with how I think things actually are, even with respect to something like, is there such thing as truth? In fact, isn't it true that when you say there's no such thing as truth that you're making a statement that you think is true? Isn't that true? (laughs) But people say things like that, and I just think uh, that's a mistake. And Paul clearly thinks that the gospel is the truth. And that's really what this good news message offered by God's grace is. It's the gospel. And Paul says that it's the gospel that's true. And we need to be standing there for sure. The book of Galatians makes that claim. Here's another kind of thing the book of Galatians does. It says that this true revelation meant that non-Jews did not have to become Jews in order to have a relationship with God. They didn't have to follow the Jewish law. Praise the Lord. Because when I look around this morning... It may be that there's somebody Jewish here. Anybody in here with a Jewish background? Just by chance? Okay, nobody. That means that all of you are Gentiles. And we may not like that word. We may think, what? I'm a, I'm a what? But, but if you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. And I'm just grateful that God made it possible for all of those of us who were not racially Jews to be grafted in, to come as those who came later to his family. Paul makes it really clear that this true revelation about who Jesus is makes this a possibility for us. Here's another thing that the book of Galatians does. It says that because of this good news message, this gospel, Jews and Gentiles had become one people of God able to participate in every facet of life together, especially table fellowship. And if you read through the first couple of chapters of the book of Galatians, that is so much what it's about. They're trying to get together. They're trying to actually eat together. And there were some foods that if you were Jewish, you wouldn't eat. The Gentiles would. 
So how are you going to sit down at the same table and have some kind of table fellowship? And Paul says, in Jesus, this is possible. And there was a problem because, of course, the apostle Peter, who for a while was eating with the Gentiles, when some folks came from Judea, no longer would eat anymore with the Gentiles. And so Paul has to set him straight. And the book of Galatians is clear that it was appropriate for Paul to set Peter straight on the issue of table fellowship. And so now Jews and Gentiles can eat together. Praise the Lord that we can have that kind of unity. And then there's also this, having faith in Jesus Christ crucified, as opposed to trying to live by the Jewish law, means living a new life. And we're going to see some of that today for sure. One in which we live through Christ and Christ lives in us. And so there's that great passage in Galatians 2.20 that Jonathan covered a couple of weeks ago. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What a great passage. Jesus lives in me. Christ lives in my life, making it possible for me to have a wonderful relationship with him. And that's, of course, for you too. So all of us Gentiles have a possibility of living for Jesus in a way that we never could have before. And Paul wants to make sure that that's really clear as he starts this book. Well, again, on the surface, it might look like some of these things aren't quite so relevant for us. But when you think about the world and its perspective on truth and its perspective on something like the exclusivity of the gospel, their response to this is that Jesus is not at all the only way. And personally, I believe that he is. Scripture seems so um, adamant about the exclusivity of Jesus as the truth of God and Jesus as crucified as the truth of God. And it makes total sense to me that we would, in our own personal theologies, the things that we think about God, that we would think to ourselves, this is what I believe. And Paul is so clear that we just can't give this up. It's interesting, yesterday, just yesterday, I was reading an article by a, a lady, a woman named Serene Jones. And Serene Jones is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which uh, for most of us doesn't mean anything. But the fact is that Union Theological Seminary is, a, is an old, uh, mainline, traditional seminary with a very rich history. Uh, it's amazing how many fine scholars and theologians have gone through Union Seminary, people who've done great things in ministry, and Serene Jones is now the president. Now, she's interesting because she has a background in the same movement as us, the Restoration Movement. And so she comes out of the same kind of historical background that we come out of. In the article, there was an interviewer, and it's interesting, I'll get to that in a sec here, just who the interviewer was, but he was interviewing her, and he asked her, so do you believe some of these cardinal things about Christianity? Like, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Serene Jones said, no, I don't believe in the resurrection. It's just an unnecessary part of Christianity. Then he asked her about the virgin birth. Do you believe in the virgin birth? And she said, no, nah, I don't believe in the virgin birth either. It's just, it's just not necessary for Jesus to have done all the wonderful things he did for people and to have been born of a virgin. And then she was asked, well, what do you think about the idea of the ex exclusivity of, of Christ in the world in terms of their answers? And of course, her answer was, well, no, Jesus is one way, of course, but he's, he's not the only way. So here is a woman who is the head of a theological seminary with a Christian background, 
And she comes out of the same heritage that we come out of. And she does not believe the same things that we believe. And she certainly doesn't believe the things that Paul believed. Now, I'm not saying things to you that aren't public or something. It's not like I'm talking behind her back. And Like if she was standing here today and I said these things to her, she would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, Kelly has said it exactly right. And this was a very public kind of article that, was, that I saw uh, about the things that she believed. It was also interesting because the interviewer said to her at the end of the interview, he said to her, you know, I don't believe in the resurrection either. And he said, and I don't believe in the virgin birth, and I don't believe that Jesus is exclusively the one through whom we need to go to have a relationship with God. Do you think I'm a Christian? And I thought it was fascinating that he would ask her that question. And she said, well, of course you are. She said, take my word for it. This is, and I'm, I'm not kidding you. This is exactly what she said. She said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian pastor. And I'm the president of a seminary. A, a seminary. Let me tell you, You are a Christian. There's no doubt about it. And I have to say, I wrestle with that. Well, no, that's not true. I don't wrestle with that. I reject that. I really think that she is mistaken in calling herself a Christian. There are things about Serene Jones that I appreciate. I'm sure that she is a kind person. I know she loves the poor. I know she loves those who don't look exactly like she looks. Um, there's lots of things that I would appreciate about her, but I couldn't in good conscience say, yes, you are a a believer in Jesus. You're a, a Christian who's following Christ the way that the New Testament lays out belief in Jesus. I couldn't actually say that about her. Because I think there are some things that she believes, or maybe I should say doesn't believe, that are just part of what it means to be Christian. And at some point, that word has to mean something. It has to mean something in direct relationship to who Jesus is. And in fact, in direct relationship to the kind of things that Paul says about Jesus. So here's something else that I would say this morning based on all that. I would say assertions about the distinctive truths of Christianity are not distinctions I'm making. They're actually distinctions that Paul's making. And and personally, I think that in order to be a Christian, one needs to be in line with the teachings that Paul offered in Scripture about what it means to be Christian. And so when he lays out what the gospel is, it makes sense to me that we would want to follow that gospel, the way that the Bible teaches the gospel. And here is maybe a summary that we've seen so far. It is the pure good news message, the gospel of faith in Christ crucified that brings us into relationship with God, and I would say nothing else. And I don't know if, I I think you agree with me about this. Maybe you don't. It's possible that there's somebody here today who doesn't believe exactly what I just said. That's very possible. But I really encourage you, if that's who you are, to think seriously about the claims that Christianity makes, the claims the New Testament makes. Investigate the Scripture for yourselves. Try and discover what it is that's in the Bible in terms of this truth conveyed about what Scripture is. Don't just take my word for it, please. Read the book of Galatians for yourself. See what Paul has to say about what the gospel is. And I think what will happen is that you'll read there the same gospel that I'm reading. 
and the same gospel that Paul preached. Well, all of that is background to what we want to do today in terms of, again, talking about what it means to believe in Jesus and specifically what it means to believe in Jesus through faith, to have faith in Christ. Look at Galatians chapter one or chapter 3, verse 1. And notice again how, how adamant Paul is from the very outset here in this chapter. This is just like in chapter 1 when he's so adamant. You foolish Galatians. He doesn't mince words. And, and I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that Paul would have always been the most pleasant person to be around. I think there were times when Paul really told it exactly like it was. You foolish Galatians. And then he says, who has bewitched you? And when it says that in the text, it actually means uh, who, who's cast a spell on you? There's something demonic going on here. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit uh, by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? Clearly, they have gone through some things on behalf of the gospel that they are now saying that they believe. And he's, he's kind of saying, look, you've gone through an awful lot here for the sake of the gospel. Are you giving that up now? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited him to, as righteousness. And I just want to stop there for a second. This is really fascinating to me. Um, if you would have asked me three weeks ago, um, what is it? that we receive by faith as opposed to law, okay? When it comes to the Christian faith, if you would say to me, what is it that we receive by faith through grace instead of through law? There are a lot of words that would have come to mind. Salvation would have come to mind. Justification would have come to mind. Reconciliation would have come to mind. Uh, there's a lot of words like that that we traditionally would say we receive by faith through grace, and apart from the works of the law. Wouldn't you agree? Look at what verses 1 through 6 says. Read it. This is interesting. Because right there, that's not what it says. It doesn't say reconciliation. It doesn't say salvation. It doesn't say justification. Not right there. What does it say that we receive by faith rather than through the law? Well, I want to know 1 through 6. What does it say in, in verses 1 through 6? What's the key focus there in terms of what we receive? The Holy Spirit. Verses 1 through 6 focus pretty much exclusively on the gift of the Holy Spirit as that which what is what we receive by faith in Christ. And I just wouldn't have said that. Like, again, I would have said salvation. I would have said justification or righteousness or something like that. I, would not have, I wouldn't have had the Holy Spirit come, first of all, to my mind. But that's what it says. I think that's interesting. Let me show you something else here. Look at this. What's that? It's a heart. It's not a Valentine's heart. Can you imagine giving that to somebody as a Valentine? Here you go. I love you. This. I'm not sure that would just blow your honey away if you were to give her this as your valentine. But this is, in fact, a heart. 
Now, I think that what Paul does here in Galatians is he gives us, and by the way, someone said to me earlier, well, that's one they'll remember, <laughs> and I think that's probably true. You, Paul is calling us to the heart of the gospel, and I would say, like we've already seen this this morning, that the heart of the gospel is something like this, the good news about Jesus. That's what I would say he's trying to do, certainly here in the beginning of this book, is lay out the good news of Jesus as being the very heart of what this whole Christian thing is about. I'm talking about the gospel here. But you'll notice that there are some things attached to the heart which are kind of necessary. Like, what are those two blue things that stick out of the top and out the bottom of the heart? What, what would we, like, usually the blue ones are called veins, and then there's that big red thing that sticks out of the top, and the red thing is usually called arteries. You guys are like doctors. Yeah, so the the red one is an artery, the blue ones are veins. And here's what I would say with reference to something like the Holy Spirit. I would say that the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit functions kind of like a major artery. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is right, like that's the, the heart of what we are. But there are some things that are so closely connected to the heart. Like what happens if that big red thing on top, um, there's enough intelligence in this audience to know this this morning. What happens if that big red thing up on top all of a sudden explodes? What do you think? You die. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Now maybe somehow somebody would get in there and repair that quickly enough or do something to save your life. But chances are if that thing explodes, you're in trouble. Okay, and I I would think the same thing is true of the blue things. Okay? If those explode, you're in trouble because they're so closely attached to the heart. You know, I've got, I've got red arteries and blue veins running through my hand or down my arm. It's possible that one of those could explode. It could explode right now, Wayne. Maybe it gets you all bloody. Isn't that a beautiful image? I don't think that's going to happen, but if it did, I would use direct pressure. I'd get a Band-Aid. I'd go to the doctor and he'd sew it up and I'd be just fine. But if the big red thing on top explodes, it is not the same thing because it's so closely connected to the heart. And I would say that that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is trying to say about the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit by faith. That that's as as important as an artery is to the heart. And so Paul makes this a major feature of the things that he's trying to say in the book of Galatians. And I have to admit, I was a bit surprised. I've read Galatians many, many times. I've read read Galatians in Greek more than once. I've preached Galatians many times. I've taught Galatians many times. But I never really noticed until this reading through that receiving by faith the Holy Spirit is a major focus of Paul in these first few verses in chapter 3 when he's talking about the gospel and how the gospel is the heart of our belief system. So that's the first thing that I think is interesting. Here's the second. This whole notion of faith like Abraham. I would say that this is another one of those major arteries or veins that's so closely attached to the heart that we just can't have without it. We need to recognize the truth of this. So I want you to look at verse 7. Notice this. Understand then, Paul says. Like he wants them to get this. That those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. 
All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it's written. Curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And so that's what, if you're living by the law, you've got to do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by the faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that he goes back to the Holy Spirit again. That just keeps coming up here. So justification comes to us in the same way that it came to Abraham, which is fascinating. Abraham was the first Jew. He's the first Hebrew. And he sets then the pattern for what God really wants when it comes to a relationship between God and his own people. And he says Abraham has accredited to him as righteousness based on his belief. Look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scriptures does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. And so what came with Abraham was a promise that holds, he says. This is the style of relationship with God that God has been seeking from humankind and from his people from the beginning. And the point simply is, We need to keep living out this kind of faith-filled example. At any point that Christians attempt to, in any way, live legalistically, it's like we skip this wonderful thing of Abraham and go right to Moses. And God, yes, we're going to see in a moment, he's got a purpose for the law, but it was never God's intention, never that God's people would ultimately live in relation to him by keeping a set of laws. That was simply not the relationship that he wished for us to have with him. Instead, Paul's very clear that the relationship we're supposed to have with him is one by faith, and it goes right back to Abraham, the father of faith, telling us exactly what that relationship is supposed to look like. And so if we're righteous, if we have a relationship with God, It's because of the faith we have in God and not because we attempted to live by some set of rules. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in different places, and we'll see this as the book goes on, to try and live by a set of rules in order to be in relationship with God runs in exactly the opposite direction of what God wants for his people. And we will compromise the gospel. We will destroy grace if we have this legalistic mindset about ourselves. It's antithetical to the gospel. It runs exactly in the opposite of the direction that God wants us to go in terms of our relationship with him. We need to be believing like Abraham believed. And Paul makes a major point of that. Well, the next thing I want you to see here, and the next thing that's on our heart diagram here is the purpose for the law. And I want you to look at verse 19. Because a logical question comes up. Why then the law? 
Why is it that if the law is not at all going to enable us to have a relationship with God, why is it that God gave us the law to begin with? Is there something wrong with it? And of course, the answer is no. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? You can just hear the Jews that are reading Paul's letter originally saying that to him. Come on now. Why would, why would God give us the law at all? It was added because of transgressions, he says, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. It comes through Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, that's pretty convoluted, okay? As I'm, even as I'm reading it here, I'm thinking, okay, now I've got to make sense of this for them. Can I make sense of this at all? And it does make sense. What Paul is saying is that, yeah, there's a purpose for the law, but it's not what we think it is. The purpose of the law was never designed by God for the, to be the source of our life in Him and relationship with Him. What the law does, in fact, is illustrate very clearly to all of humankind that we can't be in relationship with God in any way other than through Jesus. You try and live by the law and you will fail. Every time. And in fact, you take the sinful nature that comes right out of the fall, ever since Adam and Eve, you take that sinful nature and you put it alongside the the Jewish law with all of its rules and regulations and you ask the question, what's produced? And every time what's produced is failure. That's what we do. That's That's our specialty. Human beings are specialists at not keeping God's law. From the beginning, we have been practicing what it means to fail. And we will continue to practice what it means to fail. And God knows that. He'd watched us forever. He knew us before. He understood that we would never find a relationship with Him through the keeping of rules. And so what did he do? He sent Jesus. Praise the Lord that God sent Jesus. What would we do if it wasn't for Jesus? Because when I look at all of you, some of you are really good looking people. Some of you are marginally good looking people. I'm marginally good looking There's lots of things I can't do. Some of you are rich. Some of you are not. Some of you are smart. Some of you are smarter. But God, God never saw anything within us that said to us, we're going to be able to fulfill his will and do what he wants us to do. It is not possible. And so God sent Jesus and I need that so badly. Do you, do you, you have no idea how much I depend on the grace of Jesus Christ in my life in order to, for me to be in relationship with God. And, and the fact is, I have no idea how much you have to re- depend on your relationship with Jesus in order for you to be in relationship with God. We need Him so 
badly. And that's exactly what Paul says God gave us in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the law that actually points that out to us. You know, I mentioned earlier that there are all these people who think that the way to God can be found in all kinds of different means. You know, I don't know of any of those, save for one. The only faith I know of where people say that you can have a relationship by God through grace is Christianity. Everything else, as far as I can tell, depends on my works. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism or whatever you want to name. It's my sense that all of those faiths ultimately come down to how do you live? And is your relationship with God that is established on the basis of how you live? And Christianity says no. Your relationship with God is not based on how you live. Your relationship with God is based on who Jesus is and our belief in Him and absolutely nothing else. And that, Paul says, is the gospel. So if you're one of those people like me who sometimes sins and you think to yourself, man, am I good enough? I mean, how many of us have actually thought to ourselves, am I good enough? That is entirely the wrong question. Because the answer to that question is always going to be no. You're not. You are not. I'm not. You're not. Nobody is good enough. It is by embracing the life of faith offered through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we find life in the Spirit. And I want to emphasize the word life here as much as I do the word spirit. I'm just trying to put it all together in one kind of statement. This is what Paul says. That it's by embracing the life of faith offered through the crucifixion of Jesus that we have a relationship with God. And that is all. That's the heart of things. There might be some things closely connected to that. But this is right at the heart of what we believe. And Paul says, don't let go of that. We need to make sure we don't. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us this beautiful, beautiful good news message about Jesus. And it is everything. Lord, when we try to do something uh, that puts ourselves in a position of favor in your eyes, forgive us for our own arrogance. And when we think that we can follow some system, whatever that is, of of rules, and that that's going to do it for us. Change our pathetic thinking and move us to just trust entirely in you. 
And Father, help us live so well in light of what you've done in Jesus that the world sees that that's indeed the power by which we can live before you and help us to let them know. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen.